Today on Ag News Daily. When we have an animal or a herd of animals in our system, we're able to follow them through from conception all the way to consumption. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here on this June 26th, joined, of course, by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? I'm good, Mike. I'm surprised you know what date today is because you usually don't. I figured out I can set a calendar up on the taskbar of my computer. Tells me the date. <laughs> biggity boom. I just don't know what day of the week it is, which oh. is a challenge. Well, today is Tuesday because it's which Tech means Tuesday. What, it's yeah. Tech Tuesday. We've got a really good Tech Tuesday interview today talking about how really maybe the first ag company has utilized blockchain on the farm. Yeah, I mean, certainly the first that we've actually seen in practice. So folks do stay tuned. It is very, very cool, particularly, I think, if you're in the livestock business. Absolutely, for sure. It's Hashtag Tech Tuesday, and that is brought to us by our friends up at Harvest Profit. Joining me now is Nick Hora, president of Harvest Profit. And Nick, the team up there is always working to make the product better, and I understand you're doing that now through a number of new integrations. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Yeah, Mike, I'm actually on the road today, uh, driving through Alexandria, Minnesota at the moment, heading down to a, a meeting north of Des Moines put on by... Uh, the Climate Corporation, their FieldView team. Uh, we're going to be working on an integration with FieldView along with a number of other third parties, basically with a goal to give our users uh, easier access to their data, but not just have the data flow between flat platforms. We want to do it in a way to give them uh, actionable insights without turning the software management into another job for them. So that's really the key for us is to tie all this uh, really awesome agronomic data into our platform to give them insights into their real-time crop profitability and without requiring a work orders, without requiring you know a, a ton of reconciliation. So we're really trying to be thoughtful. You know, integrations are a hot topic, and we really want to focus on you know, not making this software another job for already busy customers. So that's really what we're what we're working on at Harvest Profit here for pretty much the most of the, the rest of the next year and you know excited about just continuing improving and iterating on our product for our customers. Absolutely. And farmers listening, if you want to put this software program to work on your operation, visit harvestprofit.com. Well, Delaney, so we'll get to that, but what is jumping out at you in the form of news in agriculture? Well, let's first go over yesterday's crop progress numbers, Mike. Have you had a chance to look at those? I don't have them in front of me, so why okay. don't you run them through? I run will. Us through them. I don't think that there were too many surprises, and of course we have the acreage report and the quarterly stocks report coming out this Friday, so we'll definitely make sure we share those with you guys on Friday when those do come out, but... Corn conditions ending for the week, of course, um, for the 18 states that they count, 58% were good and 19% were excellent. So really seeing good quality in the corn. Uh, for the soybean conditions, we're seeing 58% good and 15% excellent. So again, another good looking crop so far. Even in the wheat, the winter wheat, not looking as terrible as what I would have, what I would have guessed maybe. Uh, previously, we're sitting right now at 41% um, harvested, 
and condition-wise, we're sitting at about 40, uh, 30%, excuse me, uh, good to excellent, 39% good to excellent. So not terrible quality overall, um, and especially in the corn and soybean markets. So it's really going to, I know we say weather, 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 and I feel like when we talk to analysts, it's like a broken record because they're always like, well, we have to wait and see what the weather does, but really it's a good-looking crop so far. It absolutely is, and it's a good-looking crop, which, you know, some folks are getting a little wet, but we got to have something to do with this crop. Right. And Delaney, we did get an update on what some of that crop is going to be used for today. EPA yes. dropped their RVOs, the Renewable mm-hmm. Volume Obligations that they publish yearly. And have you had a chance to take a look at them? Yeah, I have. And we, we thankfully got an increase, not a huge increase. I think it's about a 3% increase. Um, But I think the big question, at least from what I've seen, is we still don't really know what's going to happen with these hardship refinery waivers. We do know. Oh, we do? Okay. Yes, EPA also released that. So as a lot of our listeners know, of course, EPA granted a lot of uh, hardship waivers to alleged small refiners saying you don't have to buy the RINs to meet your obligation. And I was talking with Dr. Scott Irwin again about it, and he said that what we have seen is that there is no reallocation. The EPA has said they are not going to take all of those RINs that were waived this last year and reallocate them. So effectively, those bushels for demand are just gone. And uh, uh, Dr. What, do you, what does that mean, they're just gone? That means so ordinarily those refiners or, yeah, refiners would have had to have gone into the RINs market and bought these credits, mm-hmm. which drives the price of the credits up, which makes blending ethanol look like a better uh, alternative or it looks more profitable mm-hmm. and they don't have to do that. So there is no support for the RINs market, which in turn drives total ethanol demand down. Okay. And the ethanol demand that they put within the new 2019 conditions, it's going to maintain that current 15 million gallons. So we're not going to see an increase and that's not ideal, I think, for, you know, using corn for other other sources besides feed. Right. So that's the thing with the RFS. So what we're bickering over now, the renewable fuel standard for corn-based ethanol, which is, of course, what most of us are familiar with when we Mm -hmm. talk ethanol, that's what we mean. Corn-based ethanol is plateaued at 15 billion bushels or 15 uh, billion gallons from now until, I believe, 2022. So we'll theoretically not ever go above that 15 mm-hmm. billion as a requirement. Now we do go above it or we come close to going above it just on demand. Uh, but as per the RFS, we won't go above it. However, last year we really only saw just about 13 and a half billion gallon requirement because mm. of all the, of waivers. the waivers. Okay. So the thought was EPA should take that less demand and lump it onto this year's or even, you know, spread it out over two years, give us 16 and a half million corn ethanol demand, uh, you know, production in order to make up for that shortfall. But they said, nope, we're not going to do that. And then this was kind of the most interesting part. They said, we're not going to reallocate. We have, uh, they were made according to the rules. And they said, quote, EPA is not soliciting comments on how small refinery exemptions are accounted for in the percentage standards, formulas, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Any such comments will be deemed beyond the scope of this rulemaking. Mm. So they're just saying, hey, shut up. This is the way it is. (laughs) Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, pretty surprising. Uh, honestly, coming from an administration who has been pro-ethanol, at least mm. in word, if we haven't seen it indeed from uh, Administrator Scott Pruitt. Yeah, very true. Well, let's see. I have some other news just breaking, actually. I just got this email as we've started recording the podcast um, about a group of bipartisan senators that have come together today to file an amendment to the farm bill that would provide an hours of service exemption for certain agricultural transporters, which would, of course, include livestock haulers. And this amendment would ensure that the exemption for operations with a 150 air mile radius from the source of an ag commodity applies year round. And basically, I think would also amend hours of service and um, the exemption would also apply to harvest and planting or currently only applies to harvest and planting periods, but it would of course give it for a year round. And that 150 air mile exemption, I think is the big piece here. Yeah. So is, is it a current hundred mile exemption? Uh, I don't know what it is off the top I was of my head. I thinking yeah. it was already 150. So really they're just making it year round. Okay. It is already. Yeah. I don't remember what the air mile radius was at this point in time. Okay. All right. So, well, you know, at least it's they're, something. They're trying. Yeah. They're trying. Um, you know, we've been talking for the past couple of weeks about dicamba, and I mentioned mm-hmm. yesterday or Friday about the number of dicamba complaints. And now I've just got a quick update for our listeners on actual acres that are alleged to have been damaged by dicamba, and it is highest in Arkansas and Mississippi. Those are both sitting there at 100,000 acres of dicamba damage. Um, Illinois, excuse me, wins the award. They've got 150,000 acres that have been damaged by dicamba. Uh, Missouri, 25,000 acres. Indiana, 5,000. Tennessee, 2,000. Iowa's 1,200 acres damaged. Nebraska had 40. And Kansas has had 100 acres that have been damaged. And these are not necessarily reports that have been filed with state uh, departments of agriculture. These are reports that have been compiled both by departments of agriculture and independent weed scientists. So some folks have just said, hey, come Mm. out, take a look. Is this dicamba damage? Blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to complain to the state. You know, I like my neighbor, et cetera. But uh, that's still included in this acreage count. Well, it's funny that you have dicamba news because I also have some, well, water hemp, I guess, not dicamba news. But uh, the University of Missouri did some water hemp, I guess, experiments and have found that there is a case of water hemp that has a six-way herbicide resistance So it all started with a farmer in central Missouri County, and he reported apparently this kind of water hemp that was appeared to be resistant to 2,4-D. And so the University of Missouri conducted field experiments and found that indeed there is a new strain of water hemp that's resistant to 2,4-D, atrazine, glyphosate, uh, fomacephin, metro, how am I, mesotrione? I'm not sure if I'm saying that one right. (laughs) (laughs) I certainly don't know. Chloramiron. I don't know if I'm saying that one right either, but atrazine, of course, and glyphosate and uh, 2,4-D. Those are the, the common ones, at least, that I know. So they said wow. of this this weed, apparently the only type of herbicide that will kill it are um, like Corteva's Enlist would probably work on it. Um, oh. Dicamba type of products. So rather than relying specifically on one one, I guess, uh, mode of action, it's going to take like two or three or four or a lot. 
Well, so, you know, and it's interesting. So dicamba is the one we have in the toolbox today that would work on this six-way resistance, right? I guess, yeah. I mean, in list, that's right. dicamba. Mm-hmm. So, boy, with registration coming up for dicamba this fall, if they do take it away, if this acreage damage is, is too great for the EPA to justify keeping it around, I mean, we lose the only tool we have against this specific, specific uh, water yeah. hemp. Boy, why can't we just take that gene out of the water hemp plant and put it in all of our food crops? I don't know. Science? I don't know how that works. <laughs> Answer me, science. <laughs> I certainly mm. don't know how it works. I assume it's magic. Oh, yeah. Magic for sure. No doubt. Yes. Um, I've got just an update here from uh, Secretary Sonny Perdue. He was at a, uh, a gave a speech earlier today, and he was talking about the, of course, tariff dispute going on between Washington and Beijing. And he said that farmers, as a rule, understand that what we're doing to China with regard to tariffs is to stop them from, you know, doing bad things to us with regard to stealing technology and dumping stuff, so forth and so on. And he said that he has been authorized to protect farmers from economic harm. We've heard about this since the tariffs first started kicking off. And he kind of went into a little bit more detail. He said that the uh, Commodity Credit Corp, CCC, part of the federal government, has uh, major tools. They've currently got about $30 billion just sitting there. And uh, the CCC can use that to make loans and direct payments to U.S. growers uh, as prices fall, should they continue to fall. And uh, he said he's not going to say what all he's got in his toolbox. Just know that he's got this powder. It's sitting there and it's dry and, uh, you know, ready to respond if the tariff dispute gets worse and ag producers bear the brunt of it. So uh, we'll see. Okay. Well, I am out of ag news for today, Mike, so why don't you uh, hop over into the commodity markets? Let's do that. And folks, our markets are brought to us by our good friends at the Zaner Group. Give them a call, put a marketing plan in place, or just figure out how to best handle the crops you're growing in this volatile season. You can reach them by phone at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. We've got an up move today in the corn market, a little turnaround Tuesday activity. The July corn contract was up two cents, finished at 352.5, December up one and three quarters quarters closed at 373 and a quarter. Not as kind in the soybean markets. July down seven and a quarter cents at 867 and a quarter. November down eight cents, finished at 887 and a half. In Chicago wheat, the July contract was off seven and a quarter cents at 469 and a half. September down seven and a half cents, finished the day at 483 even. Looking over at livestock, we've got weakness here in the live cattle complex. The June contract was down a nickel at 105.9250. August down 47 and a half cents to finish at 102.4250. Strength in feeder cattle, however, the August contract was up 32.5 cents at 146.10. September up 17.5, closed the day at 146.6750. And in lean hogs, moved to the upside today, July up $1.05 at 79.1250. The August up $1.15, finished the day at 74.75. And of course, a quick look at the dairy market. Checking out Class 3 milk futures, June was up a penny at 15.22, and July continues yesterday's sell-off down six cents to finish at 14.04. Before we talk to Lucas Fricky from Chorcheck, let's hear a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds. 
Joining us from Latham High Tech Seeds this week is Phil Long, the agronomic specialist. And Phil, we've been hearing reports throughout the Corn Belt of ample rainfall events. We're starting to see some ponding. Some of the beans are starting to change colors. What should growers be looking for and what should we be doing? Seems like this spring has been an excellent time to, to spot some of those those different disorders out there in soybeans and especially uh, iron deficiency chlorosis. Uh, it's one of them that's, that's showing up. Uh, but but remember that's that's on the top of the plants. That's you're going to see that yellowing, that intervenal chlorosis yellowing in the top of the plant, uh, not necessarily throughout the plant. Um, that's going to be kind of your key factors in, in in differentiating between a flooding issue and, and whether it's iron deficiency chlorosis. What should I do if I am noticing iron deficiency chlorosis? Sure. So, you know, typically it shows up in, in, in those saturated areas, those areas of, of high pH is really what causes it. Um, but, but a lot of it's also caused by just poor root growth. So that's a combination of factors, obviously. Uh, but it, it's a hard one to... Uh, to get to get rid of, uh, especially if you have a high pH scenario. So the, the best things are picking uh, genetics uh, that are favorable for that. We have our, our ironclad ironclad soybeans are are known for having high IDC tolerance uh, built into the, the genetics. Um, that's the best method around it. Um, other than that, spraying typically doesn't show a yield advantage at the end of the season. It's just too diluted. Um, you may see a response in greenness, but uh, typically your best bet is genetics, maybe an in the furrow if you want to try it with a with a better defensive genetics is, is typically the best route to go. All right, folks, and if you want to get those genetics to work on your farm next year, call 877-GO-LATHAM or visit their website at LathamSeeds.com. Well, folks, it's hashtag Tech Tuesday here on the podcast, and we're talking to Lucas Fricky. Lucas is the CEO and founder of a company called Chorecheck Incorporated. Lucas, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. You bet. We're excited. Now, before we get into too many details, give us just the basics. What is Chorecheck, and what makes you guys unique? So kind of the tagline that we like to use is an animal health information company. So I know that kind of may sound kind of daunting to some people, but we're taking the really hard part out of raising livestock in the modern era, which is paperwork and a lot of the compliancy that people have to do, and adding some kind of smart technology to help collect data and uh, organize things a little bit easier for the producer in the modern era. Yeah, that's really neat. And just to dive right into it here, you guys are using blockchain or the blockchain system to help with the software side of things. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so the biggest part about blockchain is that it's very transparent in the way that data is stored and shared. So when we have an animal or a herd of animals in our system, we're able to follow them through from conception all the way to consumption um, and being able to find out what happened to them, who interacted with them, medications that were given, and, you know, everything else that can happen to um, livestock in its life cycle on the farm. So we're really bringing a lot of transparency and a lot of openness to a product like never before, and at the same time really easing a lot of burdens on producers' hands when it comes to keeping accountability for compliance paperwork, you know, like was someone in the hog barn every single day? Was someone checking the cattle? you know, what antibiotics were given to a group and really take a lot of those struggles that producers have to have 
ready to go when, you know, selling their animals or transferring ownership to another person, making that, um, that whole um, handoff of information really streamless and, above all, very transparent um, so people know what, what they're getting and don't really have to worry about, uh, you know, going and figuring out on the back end whatever happened to that herd or group of animals. So now, Lucas, that kind of makes me wonder, how does the data, how does the day-to-day activity, the injections, the working, the checking on the on the livestock, for example, get onto the blockchain? There's got to be a human component in there somewhere. If I'm the user, what do I need to do when I'm using ChoreCheck? Yeah, so that's a great question, Mike. What we do is we actually have our own network signal. And we use the small data network. So what that allows the producer to do is not have to use an Internet subscription, you know, from like a, uh, a CenturyLink or a Windstream or, you know, have to use a cellular connection such as uh, Verizon or U.S. Cellular. We go through our own privatized network. And I think one of the best sensors to collecting all this data is the human being, the person that's out in the pen every single day the person that's in the barn. I mean, you really can't go wrong with a humanistic touch. So, by using um, a web-enabled device such as a smartphone, you link up to this private network um, when we do this, you know, so no information can be shared with outside sources and no one can ever steal that information as well, you know, hack into it, you know, take those records away from you. And that's how you enter the data. So using a privatized network um, through like a smartphone, a tablet, or even a computer. It's, it's a web-based, so meaning it uses like HTML, which is a code and all this other fancy kind of jargon, but it's super simple just to go in with like Google Chrome or Firefox or whatever you use to go onto Google, you can get onto ChoreCheck the same exact way, but through our privatized network. I think maybe a follow-up to that would be human error and entering this information in. Is there a way that and this is, you know, beyond the scope, maybe a little bit here, but is there a way that I could go in and say, oh, yeah, I checked this barn and this barn, even if I really didn't, if I were maybe one of the employees and not one of the managers of the livestock operation, I'm thinking maybe more large scale, like a hog confinement. Is that is there a way to hold those those workers accountable and make sure they actually did do what they said they did? You know, that's awesome because you you segue perfect into that question. <laughs> and that's the beauty about chore check is that we're able to tell who was there, what time were they there, and how long they were there. You know, some people, we, we have a two ways. One where it can pick up a, a Wi-Fi signature or a MAC address off of your phone. So let's say your oh. employee has chore check installed on their phone. Hmm. What it does is it listens, and it doesn't say, that, hey, you're connected to the network. It just knows your thing from a registered device list. And so then it knows that people are there and how long they were there, and it's within a certain radius of the unit. So we can set it, you know, 60 feet down to 10 feet. So you have to be within such a radius of the unit. So, you know, someone can't just sit out in their truck out in the parking lot and so they're out the barn. They physically have to go inside the barn wow. and be there for such a long period that it locks them in. Mm. Or we have another um, little device. We call it the barn node. What's a button? and you install that on the furthest point away from the door that you walk through, you got to press that button. And that shows that that person was there at a certain time, a certain date, and specifically in a certain location. So this would be good like in a feedlot operation where, you know, you got cattle out in a hospital pen, where, you know, you got the very back pasture that you definitely want to make sure 
that, you know, Chuck or Larry or Susie going out there, they have to press that button. And then that goes back to you, and you know that that employee was there at that time. You know, one big thing that we kind of work through is, like, how do we have a sensor to, you know, really make sure that the animals are all cared for? And I think in the end, by at least knowing that someone is there, if they're doing a bad job, that condition of the animal is going to show them. And I think that check allows for a lot of educational opportunities to be built in. You know, if someone has a question about how things are being handled, we can easily describe it in a bilingual setting um, as well. So, you know, there's a lot of employee turnover rate in some especially large farms. Now we can make sure things don't fall through the cracks by having that baseline of educational information there from the very get-go. So, you know, someone might try to weasel their way through the job, but we really try to build it with uh, growth in mind and especially for different applications. So to be completely honest, how can you lie to the system? Uh, how's the way you can weasel your way out of work? And we really built it with that <laughs> in mind, you know, with worst-case scenarios to make sure that we don't leave a loophole open for people to fall through the cracks and to lie to the system. And that's a big part why we use blockchain, to show if anybody messed with that data or something wasn't done right, you really can't ever delete it. You can change it, but it's going to show what you changed, when you changed it. Um, so, it, again, very transparent in the way that the data is stored and shared. And I, I know you've mentioned you've done uh, several interviews on this before. Hopefully, you're going to be able to connect with other sensors and really link all of the information about the barn, the environment, plus the human interaction into one piece, all tied to the blockchain. Correct, correct. And we're actually um, we're working pretty hard on a couple different feed sensors as well as a sensor to put out by lagoons and deep pits to help you with even uh, environmental compliance issues. So, you know, having to do those daily uh, checks now is going to be a whole lot easier. It'll be a report you get to print out, not a report you have to spend 25 minutes every day finding the book, you know, was it got to get hit by the power washer, kind of those things. Um, you're able to easily and simply upload that data in a very transparent manner. Lucas, what components make up the chore check platform? I mean, we obviously have been talking about, you know, welfare of the animals, but can you also integrate medications, feedstuffs? Can all of that be tracked through the platform? Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, our biggest one right now that's easily super easy to get to is our antibiotics. So, you know, putting that in there, having withdrawal times, you know, populate and so on. So, you know, someone goes and give a shot, well, that's going to put a marker on that entire herd. So we know that antibiotics are used responsibly. Um, we're also, we also have it built in there as well for veterinarians to get information to and from the patient very easily um, without leaving a lot of doors open for things to, you know, kind of be shared with people that don't need to have their eyes on those uh, scenarios as well. So that's also feedstuffs is a big one that we are working on. Um, to have a very good track record in between the feed manufacturer to the feed consumer, the animals, um, in the end, and having a very good um, history towards those products as well. So if a scenario or a situation did come out, now we know when feed arrived, who was there, what medications were given. You know, In the future, kind of the whole reason that we're trying to build this network of information is because for things like you know, God help us if hoof and mouth disease would ever break out, Chorchuck uses a universal visitor's log. So now instead of taking 13 weeks, you know, to find people that came in two, 
uh, different livestock sites, now it can take us 13 minutes. You know, being able to track a person back from, you know, a feedlot in Iowa all the way to, you know, uh, an equipment supplier in Nebraska. Now we know where people are kind of moving throughout and being able to potentially find vectors for diseases or problems uh, by using, you know, open source visitors log. So we can definitely tell where everybody's in the system, but without relying too much information to other people. Now, Lucas, I'm going to have to step back. I'm not uh, all that tech savvy. When So I'm on ShortCheck. My operation is we're using it. We're capturing all the information that we can. And I am a producer through, for example, Tyson. They've got their FarmCheck program, the outside secondary source verification program. How do I get the data that I have on the blockchain to them? What does that process look like? What do the buyers need to have installed to verify or, or get access to the data? Yeah, so we use two-way authentication when it comes down to it. So they have to a request um, access to your data, and then you're going to say that is okay, and you're going to allow them within the area that they need to look. And, you know, one of the biggest things is my family is a producer. We've been doing it for five generations you know, you don't need to show everybody everything all the time. Um, you know, some of that stuff is trade secret. You don't really want everybody to know. So one of the biggest things is that you show them what they need to know according to the guidelines, and that's how you share it with them. Um, and they can't go and see all of your records that you maybe don't want them to see. So it's very, it's very um, systematic in the way that we share the information. We share exactly what they need to know. We don't overshare the information, but we also don't undershare the information that they need to know. So they actually are able to log in through our auditor's portal. They enter in your premises ID number, and then they're going to see the ability for them to pull up what information they need to know, and that's about it. It's not, you know, pulling out all the books from the different sites and spending three hours. Now they're going to be able to say, you know, according to Trek, you pressed your barn node every single day at 8 30 to 8 15 a.m and it's going to show you how long you're in the burns it's going to be able to show them any other pertinent information that you know was applicable to their audit and that's that's pretty much the gist of it it's going to take them more being able to see that it's a verified thing because if you don't press the note or you don't come within range of the you know the barn hub um you know that wi-fi signal that was picking up the mac address signature it's not going to say that you were there. So it's going to say no chores were completed on this day. So it's not going to, you know, allow them to say that you were there. You can't lie to the system yet again. So that's, that's yeah. kind of where it comes in with that auditing, especially. Gotcha. And now, you know, we've been hearing about the blockchain, of course, it all blew up a year or two ago when Bitcoin kind of went nuts. Yep. But, Lucas, you're the first entrepreneur I've talked to in the ag world who's actually found a way to make it work for agriculture. Do you know, is is Chorchek the first of its kind utilizing this technology in this environment? Um, I haven't seen anybody else. I've heard about people trying to do stuff, but I haven't seen any real-world applications yet. Um, it's an exciting new field. It is new. The reason we went with blockchain from day one was its transparency and the ability to make sure that the product we're putting out there is backed up because our producers do great jobs every single day. Families like mine and many others in Nebraska, all across the United States, do a good job. And I think that Chorchek helps prove that. And, you know, being the first blockchain company that I know of that's actually out there 
I think is a pretty cool deal. So it really is. It really is, Lucas. I think I just have one final question for you as we wrap things up today. Are you guys available for commercial purchase yet? And if so, how can folks either get a hold of you to find out more information or find out if ChoreCheck is a good system to implement on their farms? Well, um, they can definitely give me a call, uh, 402-367-2598, or all of our information is online at www.chorecheck.com. Awesome. Well, Lucas Fricky with ChoreCheck, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Delaney, I'm excited. I I really don't understand all the technology (laughs) that goes into it, but we're fusing blockchain and agriculture. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was trying to explain it to one of my friends how we use blockchain, and I couldn't quite get it to him. But I said, you know, kind of basically like blockchain holds people accountable. Like it's an accountable system, whereas commodities, you don't really know exactly how many people are trading or taking positions or how much physical asset there is to buy and trade and sell. And I feel like blockchain is more accountable you know it's like a it's not tangible but it's right it's an open ledger yeah it's the idea that all of the information is there and it's verified by other parties and you can follow the the changes as lucas mentioned yeah verifiable that's the word i was looking for i think so folks if you've got stories of of people utilizing new technology in agriculture we want to hear about them this is the kind of stuff tech tuesday loves Mm -hmm. to chat about so drop us a note you can find us on facebook and twitter at ag news daily or you can go right to our website and uh, send us a link there at uh, agnewsdaily.com with that delaney shall we let the people go let's let them go 